Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, James Clark, author of the book Presidents in Florida, How the Presidents Have Shaped Florida, and How Florida Has Influenced the Presidents. Florida's amazing. It's gone from, of course, three electoral votes now to 29 uh, third most populous state in the Union. We'll go to the auction at the Okeechobee Cattle Market. If you sit over there, you don't want to have many uh, wild hand gestures as you speak because next thing you know, you'll have bought a cow. A visit to the serene Bach Tower Gardens near Lake Wales. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. Florida is one of a handful of swing states that actually determine the outcome of our presidential elections. In recent decades, Florida's 29 electoral college votes have gone to both Democratic and Republican candidates, making the difference between victory and defeat for both political parties. James Clark teaches history at the University of Central Florida and is author of the book Presidents in Florida, How the Presidents Have Shaped Florida and How Florida Has Influenced the Presidents. Clark points out that as important as Florida has become to our presidential election process, there has never been a president or even a vice president from Florida. It's amazing. Florida is the uh, largest state in the union to have never had a president. And, uh, and of course, Vermont's had two. And with President Obama now, Hawaii's had one. Uh, not only have we, we not had a, a president or a vice president, uh, we've never even had a nominee. During the American Revolution, Florida was under British control and remained loyal to the king while the colonies to the north sought independence. By the time George Washington was sworn in as the first president of the United States in 1789, Florida was again under Spanish control. In 1821, future President Andrew Jackson oversaw Florida's transition from a Spanish colony to a United States territory. The earliest people who became president, there were, there were several. One, of course, was Andrew uh, Jackson, uh, who comes uh, while it was still a, a Spanish territory, uh, came while it was a British uh, territory, uh, mainly to fight Indians. Uh, and then uh, came as the territorial governor briefly after it was acquired by the United States. Uh, president, future president Zachary Taylor comes to fight Indians uh, in the Seminole Wars. And then, of course, uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt comes on his way to Cuba. So, in a way, uh, three people have their uh, presidential careers launched in Florida, even though none of them are from Florida. As Jim Clark points out in his book, Presidents in Florida, in the 20th century, all U.S. presidents come to Florida, and some make the state their second home while in office. John Kennedy, his uh, father, had bought a home in uh, Palm Beach, and uh, it's where uh, two of uh, 
Two of the most famous things associated with John Kennedy took place. One, he wrote Profiles in Courage there, and two, he wrote his uh, presidential inaugural address there. Harry Truman, uh, his home away from home was in uh, Key West. Uh, George Bush, his family has always uh, had a home here going back almost a century. So uh, presidents have loved to come to Florida uh, for golf, for vacations, for swimming, uh, for fishing, and to look for votes. Harry S. Truman spent so much time in his Key West home during his presidency that it became known as the Little White House in the mid-1940s through the early 1950s. The Key West residence is preserved as a house museum that you can visit today. Senator George Smathers is a prominent figure in Florida politics. Jim Clark says that President Nixon essentially tricked Smathers into giving up one of his Florida homes to the president. Basically, Smathers in 1968, after the election of Richard Nixon, Smathers was leaving the Senate, retiring after uh, three terms, and there was a rumor that Smathers was going to be named attorney general. And sure enough, uh, there was a call uh, from Nixon's office saying that the president-elect wanted to talk to him and ask him a favor. Smathers assumed that meant he was going to be offered the uh, cabinet post. Instead, when Richard Nixon called, he asked if he'd sell him his home in Key Biscayne. Uh, Smathers said yes, and uh, it became the Key Biscayne White House. And, of course, Richard Nixon was there that weekend that the Watergate burglary took place. Since the 1800s, tourists have been coming to Florida to take advantage of our natural environment. Clark says that many presidents have enjoyed coming to Florida to go fishing. Chester A. Arthur, who was the first sitting president to come to Florida in the 1880s, uh, went to the Orlando area and uh, found this place uh, and thought it was the most marvelous place in the world, a place called Reedy Creek. And the fishing there, he said, was amazing. It was beautiful. And what's amazing is that uh, 80 years later, Walt Disney came to the same spot and bought Reedy Creek for Walt Disney World. And uh, one of the strange things, it's hard to envision this at the time, but uh, Chester A. Arthur could not go south of Kissimmee uh, when he came here in the 1880s because the telegraph line ended there and he would have been a president out of touch with Washington. There was no telegraph south of Kissimmee, so that was the southernmost point a president could go. In his book, Presidents in Florida, Jim Clark explains that the Reedy Creek area that is now Disney property has been the site of some historic presidential moments. Presidents have uh, strange relationships, first of all, with Walt Disney. Ronald Reagan was one of the hosts for the opening of Disneyland in California. And he and Walt Disney were close, close personal friends. Richard Nixon, of course, was a uh, senator from California and then vice president, knew Walt Disney well, and he and his family were regular visitors at uh, Disneyland. And they continued that into the to the White House with Disney World here in Florida. Uh, Richard Nixon gave his I am not a crook speech uh, at the Contemporary Hotel at, uh, at Disney World. Uh, Ronald Reagan was in Orlando talking to a, a religious group when he gave his famous Evil Empire speech. So uh, Barack Obama has, uh, has been there. Jimmy Carter has been there. Uh, both of uh, George Bush's have been there. So quite a legacy of people speaking at Disney World. Warren G. Harding was a frequent visitor to Florida, staying mostly in Daytona Beach and on Merritt Island. 
Just before being sworn in as president in 1921, Harding spent two days stranded in Titusville. I think this is the the story that shows how the presidency has changed. That uh, his boat got stuck uh, near Titusville, and uh, today, of course, you'd have helicopters and the military coming in. They left it on the uh, uh, the sandbar for a couple of days before the tide lifted it off. Uh, at one point, uh, Harding got bored on the, the boat, rowed ashore, uh, took a taxi cab for a ride around just to see what was happening, came back to the dock in Titusville, bought some mullet, and took it back to the ship for dinner. Uh, I, can you imagine that happening today? Entrepreneur, land developer, and shameless promoter Carl Fisher created Miami Beach. When Fisher thought that Warren G. Harding's visit wasn't getting enough press coverage, he brought an elephant into the picture, literally. Jim Clark. He came to Florida really right before his presidency to get ready. He went to St. Augustine, uh, stayed at the Ponce de Leon Hotel to uh, work up a list of cabinet officers, then went south for a little cruising, uh, fishing, he loved fishing, and uh, uh, to just kind of relax. Instead, he fell into the clutches of Carl Fisher, the man who built Miami Beach, and uh, ended up uh, at uh, Fisher's uh, beautiful uh, hotel, the Flamingo Hotel on Miami Beach, the resort hotel, uh, playing poker, drinking, carousing, and playing golf. And to get the maximum publicity, uh, Fisher obtained an elephant to uh, use to carry Harding's clubs. So, of course, it was on the front page of every newspaper in America, President of the United States with an elephant carrying his golf clubs. Florida became a very active training ground for all branches of military service during World War II. Among the hundreds of thousands of soldiers who came here were some future presidents. Two presidents, uh, John Kennedy, did uh, PT boat training here and, of course, would go on uh, to achieve fame as uh, the commander of uh, PT-109 in the Pacific. Uh, he went uh, under. He went uh, training here, uh, and also the first President Bush uh, went uh, uh, pilot training in South Florida. As you know, Ben, the state practically was a military base during World War II, and so uh, they were one of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of uh, young men and women uh, training for overseas assignments. The Bush family has many ties to Florida. Former Florida Governor Jeb Bush is the son of former President George H.W. Bush and brother of former President George W. Bush. When terrorists attacked America on September 11, 2001, President George W. Bush was visiting with schoolchildren in Florida. He was at a uh, elementary school in uh, Sarasota and he, the, uh, went there first thing in the morning. He was supposed to uh, read uh, with some schoolchildren there. They were going to read to him, show what the reading capabilities were, and uh, a lot of confusion, as you can imagine, from that day. But apparently, as so many people were, he was told there had been a, a plane crash, but so many people assumed it was a small plane and it was an accident. And then later, as he was with the, the school children, found out it was a, a, apparently a terrorist attack and uh, immediately taken to the airport and moved around that day before heading back to Washington. Over the past two centuries, United States presidents have fought wars in Florida, vacationed here, and established part-time residency in the state. 
In our modern political climate, all presidential candidates must come to Florida. Florida's amazing. It's gone from, of course, three electoral votes now to 29, uh, third most populous state in the union. And uh, here's a fact that uh, I am sure that Mr. Romney has been told uh, many times, uh, not since Calvin Coolidge has a Republican won the presidency without carrying Florida. That's almost a century ago. So this has become a vital state. James Clark is author of the book Presidents in Florida, How the Presidents Have Shaped Florida and How Florida Has Influenced the Presidents. The book is published by Pineapple Press. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to discover great books about Florida history and culture, find out about exciting upcoming events, explore our educational resources, and much more. Click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. Like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society to get our daily post Today in Florida History and much more. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features historian Gary Mormino. Before the Europeans came, the population of La Florida may have numbered hundreds of thousands of indigenous people. But although many fiercely resisted the Spanish conquest, the Indians lacked defenses against diseases that had ravaged the old world for thousands of years. Smallpox and other vectors of death decimated every tribe and confederation, breaching ancient boundaries and borders, reaching villages deep within the American southeast and beyond. There was a typhus outbreak in 1585 brought by Francis Drake's scurvy crew. Between 1613 and 1617, nearly half of Florida's Indians died of so-called, quote, pests and contagions. In 1649, yellow fever killed many Spanish settlers and large numbers of Indians. Smallpox spread rapidly in 1653, followed by measles in 1659. When Bishop Dionisio Recino arrived in 1709, he quickly realized La Florida was barren of Indians to convert. Florida's first resident bishop returned to Cuba two weeks later. University of South Florida historian Gary Marmino. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society.
the Okeechobee Livestock Market hosts the largest cattle auction in Florida, attracting buyers from around the world. Janie Gould has more. It's sale day at the Okeechobee Livestock Market, and buyers from all over the country are sizing up cattle that are being run through the auction ring. A spectator from Wabasso shares some observations about the day's selection. You don't want to mess with that one either. The way they shake their head, you know. Now see how docile this one is? The difference. They have personalities just like we do. <laughs> Dan Thomas of Okeechobee recently sold a calf at the market, and that paid for his new laptop. But on this day, he's just visiting. He's seated across from a contingent of buyers. I'm not an expert at this. I just know what I've heard. But if you sit over there, you don't want to have many uh, wild hand gestures as you speak, because next thing you know, you'll have bought a cow. How do you signal to buy a cow? Well, if you'll watch, they each kind of have their own signature gesture, and the auctioneer knows that. A lot of times it's just a flick of the wrist, a finger gesture. That gentleman there actually raised his entire hand. I just saw a guy scratch his ear and then wave. Yeah, and I actually think he decided, no, I didn't want to make that bid. This is a whole different level of communication here that your average person just has no idea what's going on. Clemens and his wife Susan have owned the Okeechobee Livestock Market since 1964. These cattle that you see there, they're being sold by the pound. The grown cows, most of them go to slaughter. This one we're looking at now, is that a valuable one or average? Well, now he's gone. Probably uh, about an average beef cow, yeah. This cow here is a little bit better cow. Because of his size, he's bigger. Yeah, that's more flesh. What about this one, a little smaller? She's not nearly as good. She's not nearly as fleshy. Then this cow here is kind of in between, maybe on the low end of average. Is there an average? <laughs> not really. The cow buyers, they know about what they need to buy the cows for, and nobody else really knows what their figure is. Does everything sell normally for some price? Yeah, we hardly ever have a cow that's put through here that the owner's there and, and they no-sale them. Prices are rising here? The cattle prices all over the whole country has been up about as high as they've ever been. I think one of the strongest driving forces behind our market now is the devaluation of the American dollar. These countries from Europe and South America can come over here and get more for their money. It's all a money game. We have a lot of people shipping meat over to these countries. We're in the holding pens. Jeff Clemens is leading me through here. Lots of cows in here. A lot of cows. Are these ones that have already been through the auction? No, these are fixing to be sold in just a little bit. Got mamas and babies and ones in the middle too. How many cows can you accommodate back here? Uh, we can hold on any given day probably about three or four thousand, but uh, this time of the year we're not running, you know, maybe a thousand a day, fifteen hundred. That's still a lot of beef. A lot of hamburgers.
from the Okeechobee Livestock Market. I'm Janie Gould. This is Florida Frontiers. For more than 80 years, Bach Tower Gardens has been a tranquil tourist attraction near Lake Wales. Bill Dudley prepared this report. There's a real strong sense of peacefulness and restfulness here, and that's exactly what Olmsted designed it for, and it was really Bach's intent. David Price has been director of horticulture at Bach Tower Gardens. It's a job that involves not only looking after the myriad plantings, but also conserving the historical aspects of the design and the mission of its creator. As we stand here, we're looking out over the Overlook Vista. You can see about 16 miles to the horizon past Bartow. It was very much Olmsted's intent as you came to the top of the hill and came up to this oak tree, you turned to the right and looked out over the, the view so you had a sense that you just climbed a very high mountain. And then as you came around the oak tree, the view of the tower was revealed. And really, in a sense, this whole garden is, is like that. You go down a path, you go into an enclosed area, very dark and almost kind of a mysterious feel to it, and maybe even a sense you, you're lost, and then you come around the corner and that vista opens up into a great lawn or, or maybe a vista out over the countryside. Having grown rich in the publishing business in the early 1900s, Dutch immigrant Edward Bach became a tireless advocate for humanitarian causes worldwide, even offering his own $100,000 peace prize after World War I. 
On a hill near a small central Florida community, Bach discovered a kind of sanctuary from his working life back in Philadelphia. At just under 300 feet, it's the highest point on the Florida peninsula. He took walks up on the hill, a very secluded place for him to sit and, and just to think and ponder life. He had the vision to create a public garden for his friends as well as the local people to enjoy. And as that idea grew, it grew to more of a public garden open to everyone of the state and everyone of the nation. Bach hired Frederick Law Olmsted, Jr., son of the man who designed New York's Central Park, giving him carte blanche to design a kind of garden retreat. The idea was to create a place that was a special place of sanctuary and calm. And then Olmsted realized that because of the elevation, in, which was so rare in the state, that what they could begin to think about doing was something that introduced the element of surprise in the landscape. And the point that he makes over and over, which his father makes about Central Park, is that the, the viewer or the participant in the landscape would have foremost in their mind as they walk through it an idea about what the whole place was meant to be. University of Miami architect Joanna Lombard says Bach's vision harkens back to a time when landscape was first thought to have an effect on human behavior. People were discovering the relationship between living conditions and health and the quality of water and health and mosquitoes and disease. And so the idea that landscape could be healthful was a really powerful idea. and. Then when that is extended to be healthful to the psyche, then that's even more important. In 1929, President Calvin Coolidge came to Florida to dedicate the garden and its centerpiece, a 200-foot Gothic tower covered with elaborate carvings of animals and plants, reflecting the 19th century arts and crafts movement. Inside the tower is a carillon containing 60 bronze bells, the biggest weighing nearly 12 tons. Perio Restina is curator of education at Bach Tower Gardens. He wanted to make a, a bird sanctuary first. Then he thought that the need a centerpiece and he thought about his homeland, uh, the Netherlands, where the carillon towers originate. And then he had the tower built from a coquina rock from St. Augustine and then Georgia marble, the pink and gray marble. And these bells were actually cast in Longbur, England. This early success of the gardens was built on the fact that that was the age of the automobile. And Highway 27 was the main thoroughfare going south, especially after the war, the numbers of visitors we had one year we had uh, 600,000 visitors. These days, even with the proliferation of theme parks in central Florida, attendance averages around 200,000 a year. As they stroll the grounds or sit quietly on scattered benches, many of these visitors may well be experiencing something of the original vision of Edward Bach. People were hopeful that they could in fact rebuild the world in a way that would be better. Today, maybe people aren't as hopeful that we can do that. They're not as hopeful that these things have restorative properties, and, um, and so we're in a bit of a different situation. To me, it's just evidence of such confidence and hope that one can have a positive impact, that one can make things better than you found them, and, and I think that's a really important lesson for us today. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council.
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Check out how you can become involved with the Florida Historical Society on the web at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week for another edition of Florida Frontiers. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.